Every Monday, John and Thax and Erica get together at John's apartment to watch Dark Shadows. You know, Dark Shadows. Surely you've heard of it. It was the most popular thing in the whole world, I think, at one point. No. It was. John used to watch four or five hours of Dark Shadows every day, back in January when he was unemployed. Now he only watches four hours a week, and only with his friends. And in no way as hardcore about it as when he used to watch with his friend Catherine. Well, when Catherine was here, she insisted that we watch it. Like for, and it would be like hard to get her to stop, actually. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it would. It would be like, you know, 12 midnight, and she'd go, please, one more, one more episode. And I'm like, you know, I've got to get it for work tomorrow. She's like, please, just one more, you know. She'd be begging, you know. It got really sad. <laughs> Dark Shadows is slow. The sets are cheap. The writing is bad. The acting is stilted. It's a gothic horror soap opera produced five days a week from 1966 to 71. And of course, it is not scary. It is never scary. Though when John was a kid, he was so scared of Dark Shadows, he'd get scared of the actress's lipstick. Even the lipstick could do it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, and it is the special Halloween edition of our program. Today we bring you stories of things that are supposed to be scary, but are not. Act 1... Dark Shadows, Act 2, Scientist in a Haunted House, Act 3, Vampire Girl, Act 4, Discovering Evil, Act 5, Gang Girl, and Act 6, Screams. Those are your screams. Your screams as left on our voicemail. I'm your ghost. I mean host, Ira Glass. Stay with us. learned at John's apartment about Dark Shadows is that the main point of it, the main pleasure of it, is watching things mess up. It's like um, watching car races for the car crashes. You know, if the car crashes came every 10 minutes and nobody got hurt. This American Life producer, Nancy Updake, and I were in John's apartment for, I don't know, <laughs> 10 minutes uh, when a werewolf exited a scene and through the open door we could all witness this figure. Not a shadowy, mysterious figure from the year 1896, but instead... Prop guy? Did you see the prop guy? Wait. Here, look. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a prop guy. There's a lot of rewinding and replaying this video, which John taped off the sci-fi channel. John and Thax and Erica have watched actors forget lines. They've seen scripts left on beds. They've seen props fall over and smash. Periodically, there's an offstage cough and what Thax describes as the sound of a giant zipper. Mysterious, inexplicable, and not part of any story. When the vampire Barnabas Collins enters the foyer of Collinswood Manor, he closes the door behind him, and a moment later it swings open again. Oh, there goes the door. Yeah. <laughs> There's something wrong with the lock on it, and it's always swinging open after somebody closes it. This is the kind of moment they live for. Giant tears in the fabric of the show's fantasy. John says that modern TV shows and movies are way too slick. What he likes are things that are either old or imperfect or both. His house is filled with huge sofa-length paintings that he's picked up at garage sales and recordings where you can hear things fall over in the studio. A fast-paced modern film like Independence Day exhausts him with its relentlessly high production values. Dark Shadows is more human scale. Like, you notice, like, the littlest things you wouldn't notice in a regular show. Like, we noticed tonight that people have stopped knocking on the door three times. They're now knocking on the door four times. I'll go out the back way. No, no, you won't. You'll stay right here. Because they'll, they'll make me go back if they... <laughs> 
Did John thinks they had a, a lengthy meeting deciding that you have to have four knocks instead of three to spice up the plot a little bit? <laughs> it's more exciting. Like the new director said, you know, we, we've got to get rid of this old, this old, the old ways things are going to change around here. <laughs> no more of this three knock stuff. John is also sort of obsessed with trying to figure out exactly when the episodes were filmed. He claims that there is a point in the 1969 episodes when suddenly all of the characters started saying groovy and freaky. By his calculations, the episodes that we're watching this night were probably filmed in February 1969. One clue? Isn't the summer, when it's summer, you can hear the air conditioner running? Yeah, and you see the flies. And you see the flies. And I've never, there are a lot like, of flies. I mean, it's like they lived next, like, like the studio was uh, next to an alley that had big garbage dumpsters because there's always flies on the set. <laughs> and it's, that's like the thing that's so amazing. Like there are scenes where flies are sitting all over people's faces and they're pretending that they're not there. <laughs> it's kind of a character study, which actors decide to shoo the flies away and which ones ignore them and continue bravely through the scenes. But the classic fly scene is like when somebody was doing an exorcism and the fly just went right into his mouth. So he just went... <laughs> Like that, get rid of it. What's interesting about all this is that not only does it defy the way you're supposed to watch horror films, it defies the way you're supposed to watch drama. They do not suspend disbelief for one second. Instead, they construct elaborate fantasies not about the characters, but about the actors who play the characters. There's like a real vulnerability to all the characters, and even like people that you don't like on the show... You know, like the Chris Jennings character, he's like this horrible actor, and that Beth character, she's like a horrible actress. But after a while, you get really, like, attached to them because you feel like, you know, you could just see her going off stage and, like, going, oh, my God, you know, and people going, oh, you did really well today. Because <laughs> you could just, you know, there's there's a life behind it. What's the matter? Girl was murdered at school last night. Her teacher, torn, torn apart by a wild beast. Yes, it uh, does seem a rather hideous way to die, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think Dark Shadows has a lot of Ed Wood to, uh, you know, has a lot of that sort of like putting things together at the last minute and, you know, putting your heart into something even though it's not very good. Because, I mean, it really does. I mean, you, you know, I've worked on really bad projects and it, you work just as hard on a bad project as you do on a good project. And, um, John's favorite actress is Grayson Hall, who plays Magda and Julia, and who inexplicably enters a lot of scenes sniffing the air, as if there's some bad odor that's never discussed or explained. I have this whole, like, I, have n I know nothing about her. I know absolutely nothing about this woman as an actress, except for what she does, but I have this whole sense of what she does after the show. I have this whole, yeah, like, world that yeah. I built up around her behind. Me too. Like, what does she do after the show? Well, I just think she, like, sits at a bar and drinks and smokes cigarettes. Yeah. You know, she's just, like, one of these people, you know, like... <laughs> like All right. I was angry. I put the curse on him. 
I said it would be a terrible curse. Yeah, she's got the most incredible facial expressions, though, of any actress I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever seen anybody whose face fascinates me more than Grayson Hall. I mean, she should have been like, I don't know, she should have been like a huge star. You mean she's good? Well, no, that's just <laughs> See? Somewhere during the second episode of the night, I realized that not only are these stories convoluted and hard to follow, they're incredibly boring. Boring in a way that invites speculation and embroidery by the audience. For instance, the reliable father figure on this program is Barnabas Collins, and he's supposed to be this really great guy, and everybody loves him, and he's always jumping in and saving people. So why is he a vampire? Thex says it can be sort of disconcerting at times. Like you love Barnabas, and they just casually mention how he, like, kills village girls to get his blood. It's like you're supposed to just sort of like go all oh that oh that Barnabas right yeah I mean every so often he goes into the village doesn't everybody go in the village once in a while and <laughs> it it takes a village <laughs> pretty soon after this John declares that he has a dark shadows bloopers reel full of funny accidents from the show he spends the next hour searching among maybe fifty badly labeled tapes for it. Um, popping in one obscure video after another. At one point, he shows us a video that he made of a macrame clown sort of dancing in a darkened room to a mysterious song. It, he never finds the bloopers real, and at a certain point, I realize the entire evening has come to resemble a Dark Shadows episode itself. Slow-moving, full of accidents, convoluted, but really kind of fun. Thax flips to the Polish videos channel and talks about the Polish Beatles movie he once saw, and John explains his plan to attend his first Dark Shadows convention in a month or two. It's strange, John says, how a TV show that once seemed like the biggest thing in the world could be so obscure now. It makes you think about Madonna and ER and the X-Files and what anyone's going to remember 30 years from now. I love the last... I, I know what the last line of Dark Shadows is. I think they were going to go back and do another werewolf plot line or something like that, and then they got canceled. And the last line is... Uh, the marks on on such-and-so's neck were discovered to be just an animal and not anything having to do with the supernatural. And I was talking to this guy, and he was like completely into Dark Shadows when he was young, and he told me this story about when him and his brother used to, you know, just watch Dark Shadows religiously, and it was the last show, and, you know, they say the line about, you know, you know, everyone lives happily ever after and then they're showing the credits and the, and the announcer comes on and says next monday at this time stay tuned for password with alan ludden <laughs> and he said his brother screamed at the screen you bastard you bastard in a certain sense things that are scary have a lot in common really with things that are funny a they both produce a physical reaction. And B, if something that is um, supposed to be scary fails to be scary, it's way more funny than something that's trying to be funny, if that makes sense. It sort of goes with that saying, but this is our Halloween show, so I'm going to say this anyway, that for John and for Thax and for Erica, nothing about Dark Shadows has anything to do with things that are scary, with ghouls or spooks or Halloween. They could care less about Halloween. So, what are you doing for, for Halloween? Well, Halloween's my birthday, so I, I don't like to dress up. That's Thax. Here's Erica. What am I going to do on Halloween? I don't know, probably nothing. I, I painted a pumpkin so far, but that's probably about it. 
And finally, John, who hates Halloween because it's a day when you're expected to be creative. I have the, my monkey hair cape. I wore that last year. Do you know what monkey hair? It's made out of monkeys. And I guess like in the 40s, they outlawed it because they were killing monkeys to make these coats. And they're beautiful coats. I mean, they're insane. And they were real popular in the 20s. And if you pet it, Act two, haunted house. You know, you can't do a Halloween show without at least one truly spooky story, and this one we have for you fits the bill pretty well. But of course, in keeping with our pledge that everything that is supposed to be scary about Halloween will be rendered harmless during our program today, what we are bringing you is a spooky story that happens to somebody who is completely unafraid, totally unafraid, could care less. A woman named uh, Carol Essler moved into an old house in Massachusetts in the 1970s, and in the story you're going to hear her and her daughter describe what happened. At first they notice these patches of um, wavy air, you know, like we see when you see heat rise off a barbecue grill. And they heard sounds, people walking, stuff clattering around when there was nobody around. Once Carol was walking to the barn and suddenly she says there was just a wall in front of her, just this force, this force blocking her way. And she said she waited, and eventually it went away. She didn't tell anybody about it. And a few days later, her daughter ran into the kitchen and said she was walking to the barn, and an invisible wall blocked her way. Carol Essler was a professional scientist, and she tried to find other explanations for what was happening, other than ghosts. But the data all started to point in one direction. One night, I was lying in my bed, and I was just about ready to fall asleep and the strangest thing was that I suddenly felt my body start to move it was like if you could imagine your body was magnetic and someone was taking a magnet and sort of moving it slowly around your body it was pulling in kind of a broad gentle way one way and then the other really felt like my body was being pulled from the outside and I'm a scientist so I I watched and I watched, and I got wide awake. And I watched that for almost two hours. As my body was sort of pulled one way, then pulled the other way. Really, very strange feeling. And I was getting really, really tired. Somehow that pulling was just making me so tired. So I thought I'd try an experiment. And I said out loud, look, I'm really, really tired. Will you please stop? And it stopped. Now, I don't know that I ever really talked to anything. Um, I don't really know what was there. It was just a very strange experience. But still, we kept trying to find other explanations. And for me, I stopped trying to find other explanations when one night I woke up. I don't know why. And I was looked across the room and there was a woman standing there and she was just standing she was looking around at things that she wasn't looking at me she wasn't looking at anything that seemed to be in the room she seemed to be looking far off and then she turned and she walked out of the room right through the closed door I thought about that for a while quite a while and I I think I've pretty much accepted now that I live in a house where there 
are ghosts, leftover pieces of other people who don't really see me because the woman didn't seem to see me or anything in the room. Sometimes I can see them. Sometimes they can move things and move me in ways that I can feel or see. Sometimes they can make noises. They certainly don't seem to be trying to bother us. I suppose maybe even they experience us as ghosts because we probably look invisible to them the way she couldn't see me. It's a very interesting house to live in. The important one I haven't mentioned yet is, is the crying baby. I have not experienced the crying baby, although it is she is said to spend a lot of time in my room. The first time someone experienced it, they were sleeping in the small room off of mine. It was a guest. And there were no children in the house that night. And the next morning he said, where was the child crying all night long? I heard a child crying all night long. There's an old foundation on the back part of the property, which is supposed to have dated back uh, from a house in revolutionary times or earlier, which had burnt here. And supposedly burnt in it was a woman and a child. Certainly, I had no training in anything like that. I come from three generations of scientists, and ghosts just don't fit. But if you're a real scientist into research, then one of the most basic parts of you is the principle that everything you know is wrong. Every theory, every model somehow breaks down. And it doesn't matter whether it's quantum mechanics or nuclear physics or superconductivity. In some way or other, the model is incomplete. In some way or other, the model's wrong. And the way you learn in science is to keep pushing your models until you find out where they're wrong. And I think living here in this house, I've got some new models <laughs> in my science. I'll be with you always. Ever. Forever. Well, this song is Barnabas Collins himself, the friendly fatherly vampire, as played by Jonathan Frid from the Dark Shadows album. With my love beside you, you won't be lonely. We'll meet again, dear, some distant day. Act three, Vampire Girl. My character is Lady Cassandra, and Lady Cassandra is a vampire. Um, the Lady Cassandra is um, basically walking, talking sex. It's not just that fear is close to laughter. It's also close to sex. Shauna Kennedy plays Lady Cassandra at Haunted Verdun Manor, this huge annual haunted house and more in Terrell, Texas, about 30 miles outside Dallas. Like Carol Essler, that woman who lives in the haunted house, Shauna is also a scientist who found a new model for looking at the world. And um, Shauna Kennedy was always sort of shy. 
She didn't like scary movies. She didn't like horror novels. She had never been to a haunted house until last year. And last year, she made a big, big turnaround. Now, every night, she goes out to haunted Verdun Manor to roam the grounds looking for victims. And we basically try to physically and psychologically torment the people waiting in line to get into the house. Like how? Oh, we stalk them. Um, We will look at the crowd and try to pick the one most likely to give a good fear reaction. And we try to get that person's attention from a good distance. And then very, very slowly creep up on them, maintaining eye contact, never breaking the stare. And this is usually enough to give us a good scream or squeal or at least a break and run out of the line. And you're shooting for, are you shooting for a break and run? That's always good. It's very entertaining for everyone else in the line. Um, A scream is also good. We like a good scream. What do you wear? (laughs) I wear a skin-tight black velvet dress with a slit almost all the way up one leg. What do you say to men and women when you walk up to them? I don't say anything. You don't talk at all? I talk as little as possible. How come? Uh, Because people in power um, don't need to say a lot. So if you say as little as possible, it gives people the impression that you are more powerful than they might necessarily feel. And how does this compare to who you are when you're not uh, playing Cassandra? Oh, I'm a science geek. (laughs) I work in a laboratory. I play with DNA. Um, I'm just as happy being uh, in the back corner of the lab by myself doing whatever. Wardrobe of your daily life? What do you wear in your (laughs) Jeans and a sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. Um, At night, my clothing will get more flamboyant. Also, I'm a belly dancer, so my costuming for that is pretty flamboyant. Why do you like scaring people? It's an amazing feeling of power to know that here you are, somebody that um, generally in my in my geek girl uniform and my glasses and my hair pulled back um, in a little top knot, I wouldn't make anybody look twice at me. But as Cassandra, not only are they looking twice at me, but some of them are actually running from me. <laughs> And I like that. That's fun. <laughs> this is a question I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure how exactly to ask, but I want to ask it, and I, and, I, and I'm sure it's something that you might have thought about, given the way that you're costumed when you do this. What is the connection between sex and Halloween? Between sex and scaring people? Um, the sexual response and the fear response in human beings is similar. Um, increased heart rate and respiratory rate. See, now you're sounding like the science. <laughs> um, similarities in the way your body responds to both fear and sex. Um, also, some of the images that that we have in Western culture of things that are horrific are also basically sexual. Like what? The werewolf is the beast within. Um, basically, vampirism is just sex from the neck up. Um, you're... you're penetrating a passive person. Um, It's just, it really is a very sexual sort of monster. So when you're wandering the grounds, do you feel like it's one intense little seduction after another? Absolutely. Compare the the sexuality of doing Cassandra to the sexuality of doing belly dancing. 
the sexuality of Cassandra is is dark. She always will have that underlying element of I could have sex with you or I could kill you. With belly dancing, it is it is a joyful thing. It is um, this is my body and this is how it moves. And isn't it great that it moves this way? <laughs> Aren't you enjoying this? Are they equally sexual experiences to, to, to perform? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, That's incredible. Absolutely. Shauna says that she hated scary stuff until a few years ago when she read this Stephen King book, Dance Macabre, which makes the case that everybody needs a good scare now and then and that all cultures have some version of ghost stories to do this. And reading that set her on this path that eventually led to her playing Lady Cassandra. And she says that playing Lady Cassandra sped up this process that she thinks would have happened anyway in her adult life of learning to be more assertive. She says it's also given her a more complicated picture of herself than she had when she was a kid. I saw myself before as being a, you know, a good Baptist girl, a complete creature of goodness who was going to be tormented by the powers of darkness. Afterwards, I see myself as a creature of both light and dark. I have both elements in me. And I sort of got the idea that I really wasn't going to go to hell for it, for having a dark side. <laughs> it was no longer threatening to me. And this brings us to our next story. This is a story about another Texas girl discovering her dark side. We have arrived at Act 3 of our program, The Evil Within. And we are pleased to welcome back to This American Life, writer Julie Shaw Walter. I was raised a Baptist, a Southern Baptist in West Texas, so I always knew that I was a sinner. But it wasn't until Halloween Day in the fourth grade that I thought of myself as a sinful being. Before that, sin was something that could be overcome through hard work, prayer, reading the Bible, and thinking of a way out of coveting Tommy Sue Bailey's new Madame Alexander doll. Afterwards, I knew sin was part of me, in every molecule of my body, and I could never get rid of it. I was very excited about going to school on Halloween Day. Mother had decided I could look like Daisy Mae Yoakum, little Abner's wife in the funny papers. She cut off and fringed a pair of old jeans. She found a peasant blouse, which we ripped, then pinned together with a diaper pin. She put my hair in pigtails and painted freckles on my nose. When she finished, she said, You look so cute. Let's take a picture to send to your daddy. Daddy lived 80 miles away in Amarillo. He visited pretty often now, and he and Mother wrote letters. I smiled my best smile for the picture, a smile that would show Daddy what a good, pretty girl I was and make him want to come home to stay. The next day, I went to school, bare-legged, bare-footed, bare-shouldered, knowing that about half my friends would have ripped up one of their father's old dress shirts and come as bums, and the other half would have dug out old cowboy guns and cowboy hats and called that a costume. I thought I had a chance at the prize. I imagined my teacher's reaction. Janice, you're just the cutest thing, she'd say, and so clever. Maybe she'd hug me like she did sometimes.
Mrs. Wells was the first teacher I idolized. She was young and pretty, sweet and vivacious. She dressed in pastels and smelled like cotton candy. She had just married, and her husband was a part-time football coach and a part-time Baptist minister. For a while, I wished my mother would die and she'd adopt me, but I realized that was a sinful thought. So, I wished there was some kind of big sister organization, and she'd be my big sister, and maybe my mother would decide I should live with her because she lived closer to church or something. On Halloween, I stopped just inside the classroom door, waiting for her to see me, posing a little, excited for her reaction. When she turned, her mouth dropped open. Janice Ray Hopewell, what are you thinking of? That outfit is indecent. It's obscene. You look like a little temptress. Why, you're practically naked. A temptress? Naked? I didn't know I was naked. Then I thought of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how they didn't know they were naked. I looked down at my feet and legs and saw them as the feet and legs of a naked temptress. While Mrs. Wells talked to me, she pulled Ernesto Rodriguez's chair to the back. Janice, sit down in the corner. No, not at your desk. It's right in front where anyone walking by can see you. Sit in the back here. Patsy, get the blanket out of the closet. She can cover herself with that. Leon, go get the principal. Tell him it's an emergency. Cover up, Janice. You'll cause sinful thoughts. I wrapped the blanket around myself. I remembered asking my Sunday school teacher, how could it have been all bad for Adam and Eve to eat the apple since they got knowledge of good and evil, not just evil? And she said, they really just got knowledge of evil. Everything had been good up to then. I pulled my feet up under the blanket. The principal came in with Leon Anderson right behind him. What is it, Mrs. Wells? Is one of the children hurt? Mrs. Wells blushed. I guess it's not really an urgent emergency. I just felt we had to do something right away. Janice, show him your costume. I couldn't believe it. She'd said I was naked, and now she wanted me to show the principal and the whole class. Janice Ray, take that blanket off. I stood up and put the blanket on the chair behind me. I looked at the floor. After a minute, the principal said, Well, there is a requirement that children wear shoes to school for health reasons, but if she stays off the playground, I don't think anything will happen in just one day. Janice, you tell your mother that your costume next year has to include shoes. Mrs. Wells grabbed his arm. Can I talk to you in the hall? I could see them talking outside the door as I put the blanket back around me. At first, the principal looked like something was funny, but Mrs. Wells didn't calm down. Then he looked mad and did the rest of the talking. When Mrs. Wells came back in, she walked over to me and jerked the blanket away. Janice, give me the blanket. It seems I have overreacted. Her face was red, and she sounded like she was reciting a lesson. She didn't look at me. There's nothing inappropriate about your costume, although bare feet are extremely unhygienic. Go to your regular seat. Can I keep the blanket? No, you may not keep the blanket. 
There's absolutely nothing wrong with your costume. In fact, I think you should stand up in front of the class so we'll all have a chance to look at it. It will be good for all of us to see what's acceptable so we don't overreact again. For 15 minutes, she made me stand there while the other kids looked at me and giggled behind their hands. I thought about all the temptresses I knew, about Bathsheba and Delilah, and about Salome who danced nearly naked so they'd cut off John the Baptist's head. I thought of the movie ads with Carol Baker in baby doll pajamas sucking her thumb that all the preachers were mad about. And I thought about Marilyn Monroe with her skirt blowing up, looking happy, and how everyone said Joe DiMaggio had divorced her because her skirt blew up. And if part of me was excited that I could be a temptress like Eve and Bathsheba and Delilah and Salome and Carol Baker and Marilyn Monroe and maybe even like Elizabeth Taylor, most of me was horrified that I was sinful and causing sin in others without even knowing how or why. It was just something I was, not something I did or even thought. I thought of Daddy seeing the picture of me nearly naked, and I knew I'd ruined everything. He wouldn't think I was a good, sweet girl anymore. No one who knew about the costume would ever think I was a good girl again. I got to spend the whole day at school bare-legged, barefooted, bare-shouldered, feeling totally naked. At recess and lunch, I rushed to the bathroom, locked myself in a stall, and pulled my feet up so their nakedness wouldn't show. The next time Daddy came to see us, I was embarrassed and stayed in my room. And six months later, when Jimmy Riga pulled me into an alley and kissed me, I let him, even though I liked Leon Anderson. And the next day, I saw Jimmy whispering to Leon and knew they were talking about me. And two years later, when the principal at my new school got the sixth grade girls alone in the closet and rubbed all up and down our fronts, I was the only one who didn't tell her mother, because he was a deacon at the First Baptist Church, and I was a temptress. Julie Showalter's short story first appeared in Other Voices, a literary journal published by the University of Illinois in Chicago. She's the author of the forthcoming novel, Needlework. Coming up, what really scares people today, really, and your screams. It's in a minute when a program continues.
It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, we choose a theme and invite a variety of writers and performers to take a whack at that theme with short stories, monologues, mini-documentaries, whatever they can think of. And it is the Halloween edition of our program. And our theme is things that are supposedly scary but are not really scary. Uh, we are at Act 4. And I actually got the idea to play you this um, next interview, the interview that will make up most of Act 4, when um, Shauna Kennedy, that uh, Texas woman who dresses up as a vampire, said the following thing to me about her and her colleagues at Haunted Verdun Manor. They all take a real joy in doing mean things to perfectly nice people. (laughs) What's the pleasure in in doing mean things to perfectly nice people? You can do it. You have the power to. This picture of power reminded me of interviews I'd done with uh, Chicago gang members. And in a certain way, you know, gang members are perfect for a Halloween program. After all, what are most people really afraid of? Not goblins, not ghosts. Most people are scared of armed urban teenagers (laughs) <laughs> you know, who just don't care. They just don't care. And I, I would make the case, I believe that this fear, like the other fears in our program, is not totally justified. But you can you can judge for yourself. This is an interview with a young woman who was a gang member for years who now, counsel, who now counsels girls in Chicago gangs. I was 12. I was 74 pounds. Maybe four, four foot and all. Okay. My mother thought I was her little angel. My grades were decent. My teachers liked me. I didn't get in very many fights at school. It was when I was out in my other neighborhood. This is where I became this big, bad, super person. And this is where I did all my damage. And why? Because I could. How did you get rank in the game? Me and a girlfriend went into a school, broke into a school, kind of destroyed some stuff. And uh, we got recognized for it. Did and they tell you, here's what you're going to do, here's your no, mission? There's, there's kind of... See, what happened was this. There was a teacher who was bothering somebody else. And what we were to do was go and scare this teacher. So what we did is we waited till everybody was gone and everything, and we broke inside the school. Then we kind of went to her room and tore it up. And that was enough. Did you put gang signs on the wall so everyone would know like who did it? on the chalkboard. And in chalk? In chalk. Because <laughs> the pen wouldn't write in it. And we didn't have no spray paint. Um, in chalk, and we did do like a couple um, markers like on the walls and stuff. And on her desk, we did a nice big one to let her know like where it came from. Because he kind of threatened her, and we were his threat backup. So she left him alone after that. So I guess it got our point across. This poor old lady, she didn't know anything, you know? And she wasn't hassling him because she just wanted to hassle him. Just has something because he deserved it, especially now that I work with children. I mean, I see that she was hassling because he deserved to be hassled because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And yet, we just we rocked her world. I mean, she was afraid for Lord knows, maybe years after that. She was, she was, she was very afraid because I went to the same school and she was very afraid. 
we went in that Monday, she was very afraid. I mean, we had tore everything up that was hers. Everything. I think it was cruel. Real cruel. I think a lot of things we did were real cruel. When we were there, it wasn't like, shh, be quiet. No, it was like, throw everything, scream, laugh about it. See, this is the thing I don't know. I don't know how to even um, capture it or explain it on the radio, and that is the difference in reality if you're in the gang mm -hmm. versus the way you see it if you're not in. I mean, the way that you all saw what you were doing was... It was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. You guys laughed. It was real. It was a power trip. I mean, it's it's real. It's power. When you're 13 and you can walk down the street and everybody looks at you like, there goes the Pope. That's a power trip. When you're on the street, some people can just walk up to somebody and just smack them, just smack them to hell and that'd be it. But I was more like, what, you said something about me, you got something to do about that? You know, I would lead it on for I could get my anger up, for I could muster up my courage, talk to them, argue with them, get your momentum up, get your anger, you know, get that nice wild flush in your face or something. And then like the nice crowd that's behind you saying, kick her ass, hit her, you know, and all this, and then you get this bold kind of stance on you and then you you can hit someone you know and you get all your nice anger out but i couldn't just like walk up and smack somebody and and the girls who you see now um the girls who i see now are lost they're so lost they're like that all the time they think they know everything and they don't need no reason to because they know everything so all they need to do is go up there and do it and one time my cousin said, well, I just went up there and I clocked her. I said, like, you clocked her? You just clocked her? You didn't even say anything to her? She's like, no, I don't need to say anything to her. All I need to do is walk up and clock her. So, so you walked up to her, you clocked her in the face, and that was it? She was like, yeah. And I'm like, what were you thinking when you walked? She goes, I wasn't. Because when I try to reach out and I try to tell kids you shouldn't do this because it's bad and you'll hurt people and and they say you did it. Yeah, but I would think actually that could work to your advantage. You say yeah, I did it and I'm sorry. <laughs> some of them it does. For some of them it doesn't because yeah. they can't get past. See, because I can say to some of them yes, I did, and this is how I feel about it now and I yeah. regret it. But some of them they can't get that past the fact that I did do it, so that makes it correct. And every time you turn around, they say, but you did it, you did it. And it's not the fact that I did it, it's the fact that I did it, I regret it, and I got out. That's what I want to pass, that I got out and I regret it. See, but what they're saying to you in a way is even more interesting. What they're saying to you is, I'm not so bad. 
I'm not so bad. Look, what I'm doing isn't so bad. Because look, you did it. Everybody does it. You're telling me that I'm bad. You're telling me the way I am is wrong. But I know in my heart that I'm not that wrong. See, that's how I thought when I was doing all this. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong. I mean, so what? So I went in there and I wrecked the classroom. So what? So I hit somebody in the head with an ear. They shouldn't have been messing with me. You know, so what? You know. Even as you say it, your whole face turns into like... Fourteen-year-old. I mean, you just like you, you like shake your head and like your whole like you kind of swagger. So it's what? just like your whole personality just transforms. This is why, in a way, is it's hard for me to talk about this because I do. I change, you know, and I start the so what, and I don't care. lived on the corner of Beach and Spalding, right there where they would kill people and hang them from that from the light post. They hung people from a light they post? They hung one person. And what it was, it was around Halloween, and what they did is they like put jogging pants and filled it with newspaper, and they put a hood and they put a kind of banana hanging out of a conspicuous place, and uh, they kind of hung them from the light post. And nobody knew. Because it looked like, you know, a dummy hanging there. But it was a human being. It was a human being. Dead. Dead. Not alive anymore. So that would, see, that was, that was from a whole big war. And that was, like, our victory or whatever. This is this person. Then he had certain colors on. You know, certain color jog pants, certain color jog shirt that he had on, certain color gloves. Put in a most... You know, and fingers bent down on the gloves and all that stuff to represent. In death, they they pushed his fingers into his gang sign? No, not into his gang sign. They just pushed it. They just had the gloves on it. They had the glove taped down, holding upward our gang sign, not his. Not his. (laughs) Ours up. Are you one of the people who did that? No. I was too young. But you saw them do it? I didn't see them do it. I just knew about it. People must have laughed about it. It was hilarious. I mean, to them, I was too young. I was maybe eight. Yeah. I remember seeing it. I remember it there. I remember asking my mother why it's there. What did she say? She says she don't know and she don't want to know. And what, what did you think of it as at eight? At age eight? I just kind of wonder why it was there and who would do, how they got it up there. That was my whole big thing, how they got... As a child, you wanted those things, and I just kept wondering, how did they get it out there? And I just thought it was newspaper. And it was a person. And how long was it up there? It was up there a couple of days. It was up there a couple of days. It's I remember, because it was like stenching. It was smelled. And they cut it down. The police came, and they cut it down, and the banana had already fell off, and that was it. And nobody said anything. Nothing went out. Nothing. There was no screams. There was no nothing. It was just somebody come, cut it down, picked it up, put it in a, in a truck. Police came, scanned the area, came back. No. That's it. Nothing was ever mentioned. Nothing. Now we move to Act 6, Screams. Well, a few months ago, we introduced you to Dr. Greg Whitehead of the Institute for Scream Studies, who has been collecting screams from around the world. 
And um, his thesis is this. He says that we tend to think of the scream as a kind of monochromatic sort of um, binary unit of information. Someone, exp- someone either screams or they don't. They express a kind of screamness or they do not. Whitehead says that is very simplistic, that there are hundreds of different kinds of screams, and there's meaning to divine from screams, and we have to divine that meaning. And he invited your screams, yours, for his collection, for his analysis. And dozens of you called and left your screams on voicemail. And after all, what would a Halloween program be without screams? Please enter your mailbox. Your mailbox is almost full. Hi, my name is Oliver, and I'm going to leave my screams. much about screams, but uh, it is rather purging. I just got off, and I'm completely frustrated with a fellow employee. The message will be safe. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I work at a company that works six days a week, 12 hours a day. I'm so sick of it that I want to scream. Hi, uh, I'm the lead singer in a band called Hate Wave in Chicago, and I heard a little bit about your studies, and, uh, it reminded me of the music I play in this band. The lyrics are all screaming, and uh, screaming is a really great thing. And it's a lot of fun to listen to. So I'll give you the first verse from a song called Bodoon Goat. because I think screams reveal a lot of subtleties of character, and I've always liked sounds, um, sound for its own sake, so I think this is really interesting. And um, when I was growing up, I was not allowed to scream. I was a very, very quiet, good child, so for me to scream at all in public is... (laughs) Really unusual, so here I go. Hi, I'm eight. Um, one thing that makes me scream is when I go when I go on a roller coaster, I scream because I'm having fun. 
feel dumb if I screamed, so I'll just hang up. Hello, um, I was listening to the radio the other night and, and I heard about the scream line and I just thought I'd uh, kind of leave a, a little story on, on how I scream and, and where I do my screaming. Now, right now I'm calling you from a car phone. I, I work in uh, Sacramento, California and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I make a drive of 109 miles, uh, not every day, but at least three times a week, back and forth. And so I'm dealing uh, with customers uh, at my job, and I also have to deal with the, uh, the other participants in this commute. And uh, so what I do is when I'm in the car and, and I reach about... Well, it's about this point in the drive. I guess about uh, I'm about 75 miles into the drive. I I always uh, vent all my uh, all anger and stress and anxieties and and everything else with a with a good old scream. I I really didn't know it was uh, you know anybody else did anything like this until I I heard your uh, your radio show. Uh, so. Uh, Here's my scream, and this is what I do. And I really do feel much better after I do that. I, it clears my lungs, and I actually can see better. Uh, even though I wear glasses, I actually can see better. So. Thank you. doing it. It would be nice to, I thought when I was going to call this number that maybe I would be requested to scream or or encouraged to scream, but it's so hard to do here in the city. Um, and I'm out in a bungalow on the, the northwest side of Chicago, and the neighbors are probably about four to, I don't know, six feet away or, you know, maybe 12 feet away with some walls in between. And I just feel like... Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate to scream. So I wish I could be sure I could scream when I was living in the mountains in California. Um, I could I could sing my screams and uh, and and just do it. And it was great. It was a wonderful you know way to to uh, express myself and to release a lot of things that I was holding in. But I can't do it here in the city. So that's what I wanted to say. Maybe I'll call back another time and say stuff, too. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. On the count of three. One, two, three. No! There's a power yell from the Los Angeles Commission on Assaults Against Women. message will be I'm in a library right now so I can't scream very loud 
to end the session. Goodbye. That radio experiment from Dr. Greg Whitehead in Massachusetts. The house is haunted by the echo of your last goodbye. The house is haunted by the memories that refuse to die. Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Peter Clowney, Elise Spiegel, contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rocklin. Special thanks today to John Connors for musical help. Yes, it's the same John Connors watches Dark Shadows. Carol Essler's interview comes to us from the 1979 NPR program Your Radio is Haunted, produced by Keith Talbot. I actually worked on that program as well. If you would like a copy of this program, it costs $10. Call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380, or you can email us with any kind of message, radio at well.com. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. And 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 what what's coming up next? Stay tuned for Password with Alan Ludden. <laughs> and he said his brother screamed at the screen, You bastard! You bastard! <laughs> I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Goodbye.